0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. September 11, 2001 led to a new era of the American war machine, certainly in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also with military actions from the U.S. and at least 20 other countries since. As the years have passed, we seem to be less and less aware of ongoing and active u.s military actions why is that and in the face of a propaganda machine that doesn't bring this country's warmongering into media consumption every day what does it mean to build an anti-war movement against it my guest today is norman solomon a journalist media critic activist and the author of more than a dozen books his latest book is called war made invisible how america hides the human toll Of its military machine. Norman, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Jesse. Very happy to have you here. Let's start by bringing us back to what your book talks a lot about as kind of a turning point in the US war machine. That's the attacks on September 11th, 2001, in New York City at the Pentagon. Those attacks led to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the much broader war on terror. What distinguishes that time frame, those attacks, and what it led to in the history of a country that's been at war in some capacity for much, much longer? What's the turning point that 9-11 led to?
1: What happened in the aftermath of 9-11 was, as you say, a turning point. It certainly was not a 180. It was not a super drastic change of direction. It was an acceleration. It was a um, doubling, tripling, quadrupling down and more on what had become a progression, a regression of militarism over the previous years and decades. If we chart the way that events unfolded after the Vietnam War, there was an appropriate revulsion that much of the U.S. public felt about the realities of the slaughter, the killing of so many, the best estimates, upwards of three million Vietnamese people during the war in Vietnam. And, of course, direct deaths of U.S. uh, troops, about 58,000. So, politically, it was not setting too well in the mid 1970s and it took a number of years for the united states government with its pentagon armaments to reflex and utilize directly its military muscle and so um, the uh granada invasion of 1983 under president reagan can you think of a more powerful country <laughs> invading a less powerful country than this tiny island in the Caribbean? And that was uh, touted as a great success, You know, a little morsel uh, of uh, the great appetite of U.S. imperial might. And then under the first President Bush in 1989, the invasion of Panama, not a huge country, obviously, but a bit bigger, and uh, situated at the Panama Canal. And so that also got tremendous support, enthusiasm from the U.S. uh, political and media establishment. And then that brings us to the Gulf War. Again, this is an upward progression. In six weeks, in 1991, early in that year, according to the Pentagon, 100,000 Iraqis killed, mostly from the air. And that touted as a great success. And this sort of goes to your question, Jesse. At the end of that war, the first President Bush, Herbert Walker, said in a speech that, as he put it, thank God we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. And then we had, under the Clinton administration, Periodic bombing of Iraq. And then in 1999, uh, the US leading the NATO bombing for about 78 straight days of Kosovo and Yugoslavia. And that again, touted as a great success, especially because no Americans died. You know, we're all above it all. We're bombing. Great. So this is sort of a bipartisan pattern reasserting itself. So that's a, a backstory. And then after 9-11, it was off to the imperial races with tremendous military power and killing exerted on Afghanistan and then Iraq, Syria, Libya, and elsewhere.
0: So that is the backstory Talk a little bit more about the turning point that 9-11 was, especially in the American public's broad awareness of, of what was happening. Certainly, there was this development over decades where U- U.S. was engaged in war that included less U.S. deaths. And you were just talking about some of those instances in the 90s. There was also some serious developments in how coverage was done by media and a whole rollout of a um, almost a, a newly developed twenty-first century type of propaganda machine around it.
1: The techniques uh, from the Pentagon were uh, variable; they were flexible; they were responsive over time to the media environment, or at least some of the particular modalities and uh, messaging put out some complaints from, for instance, mainstream media, TV networks of the United States in uh, uh, 1989. They didn't like being uh, cooped up in a hotel while the Mm. U.S. military uh, did its triumphal killing in Panama. And so essentially the Pentagon said, you want access? We'll give you access And so um, subsequently there was a lot of embedding of reporters, hundreds and hundreds of them, and they got access. And during, for instance, the Iraq invasion of spring 2003, as I document in my book, War Made Invisible, there were many, many U.S. journalists who traveled with the U.S. troops. And uh, there was a slip uh, from one of the national TV anchors, he said, uh, we have our our correspondents in bed with the troops. He meant embedded. But essentially (laughs) that accentuated the tendency anyway for the reporting to be through the eyes of the invaders, not the eyes of the invaded, Uh, through the eyes of the occupiers, not the eyes of the occupied. And so, this was a process where there was a common through line, even though there were sometimes complaints about how the Pentagon handled media with some exceptions, but I'm talking not only about Fox News and right-wing media. I'm talking about outlets like uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, NPR's All Things Considered and Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour, These are the kind of outlets, uh, now more recently, having been formed uh, in this century, MSNBC, they are part of the war-making apparatus. And they essentially might as well have an office in the Pentagon uh, that is taxpayer-funded. Before we get
0: deeper into that propaganda machine, and we are going to, I'm just... I'd like you to position yourself at that time. You're not just a journalist reflecting from what you've learned now. I know even before the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, you were going back and forth between the Bay Area and Iraq. Can you position yourself during that time for our listeners? What was your experience as a journalist in that context?
1: My blend of work for, uh, I suppose, several decades, you would say, is a combination of journalism and activism. I'm an anti-war person. I grew up during the Vietnam War. And the myth that uh, journalism can or should be, quote-unquote, objective, is one that I've rejected for a long time. Uh, Journalism should be striving for fairness, certainly should be accurate, But we have values, whether we acknowledge them or not. Um, Even mainstream media, I don't hear them saying, well, let's debate on whether cancer is good or bad. Um, We bring values to the table. And so in my work as the executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, I really perked up my ears in the summer of 2002 when Saddam Hussein announced that members of the U.S. Congress would be welcome to come to Iraq and inspect for weapons of mass destruction. Now, of course, members of Congress were not qualified, but still, it was an opening. And it was immediately trashed by the bipartisan leadership on Capitol Hill. It was trashed by the White House. And I thought, wow, this is an opening. Clearly, the U.S. is moving towards an invasion of Iraq, we shouldn't be fatalistic. And so at the Institute for Public Accuracy, we began to ask members of Congress if they wanted to go to Iraq to engage in dialogue with the Iraqi regime. And eventually, we got a yes from a Democratic congressman in West Virginia named Nick Rahal, who was not particularly progressive, but he was of Lebanese ancestry. And we were able to reach him through the former U.S. Senator Jim Aberesk, who was one of the most progressive senators in our lifetime from South Dakota. He knew Nick Rahal, and so our institute ended up financing and organizing and sponsoring a small delegation that I was part of, led by Congressman, sitting Congressman Rahal, and former U.S. Senator uh, Jim Aberask, and also um, someone from the organization Conscience International. And so we had those meetings in Iraq, and that was the first of three visits that I made before the invasion. And we had meetings with um, Tariq Aziz, the second in command of the Iraq uh, regime in each case. And right after our first visit, um, the Iraqis um, allowed UN weapons inspectors back into the country, which actually the uh, Bush White House did not want to have happen, but did happen.
0: And that's the voice of longtime journalist and anti-war activist Norman Solomon, whose new book is called War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. I want to get into a little bit more depth around the strategies that are used to hide the human toll of the military machine. One of the elements that you you talk about is uh, the need in order to hide the human toll is dehumanizing people. You have a really um interesting conversation in the book around innocence and you quote James Baldwin from The Fire Next Time saying quote it is innocence which constitutes the crime. It's interesting to me because the discussion of harm and justice in this country is is also centered around innocence. It's somehow easier For the U.S. in general to find, in the context Baldwin was talking about, black or brown people as less innocent, as opposed to, say, the professionals who died in the 9-11 attacks, those people were so boldly innocent that the war machine builds their innocence in comparison to, or lack thereof, of others like, say, the hundreds of thousands or millions of civilians in Afghanistan and Iraq that were killed in those wars. Can you talk a little bit more about the concept of innocence and its relationship to humanization or lack thereof?
1: In part that could be connected to what we were talking about a bit earlier in terms of whether this was a, a turn in U.S. policy after 9-11 right. and it was really an intensification. Uh, Even with the invasion of Panama, the U.S. government, uh, through the White House and so forth, presented the United States as the victim. Now, how could that be? The United States invades Panama, and the U.S. is the victim? Well, there was a a Navy officer who was strolling in Panama City with his wife, and uh, they were harassed and roughed up. So, um, ergo, e pluribus unum, the United States is the victim. So the U.S. has always been, in these wars, portraying itself as um, the victim rather than the victimizer. And that connects, I think, to the pervasive, although tacit, attitude that when Americans die or somebody dies in the United States, in the case of nine eleven we are really, really, really the essence of humanity. We are not only the victims, but this is a transgression against all that is sacred. But when the United States kills with drones, with gravity bombs, with missiles, that's a whole other story. And something that, I didn't really fully realize until I was working on this book, and I think it's another way in which the title is appropriate, War Made Invisible, is that the victims of U.S. firepower are made invisible through a sort of Venn diagram or a plastic set of overlays of what in U.S. media and politics dehumanizes and makes invisible the victims of U.S. warfare. And there are several factors, and one of them is racial. It really stunned me to realize, and it's a point that I have been unsuccessful in getting into major media with op-eds and so forth. I have a number of op-eds that get published on this or that, but this topic seems to be a de facto taboo. I don't see it in news media. Uh, and that is that in the so-called war on terror, which really often has been a war of terror, the U.S. government has killed a vast number of people, and virtually all of them have been people of color. That's just fact after nine eleven, and it's hidden in plain sight. And I make a clear point in the book that. The US doesn't bomb countries because people of color live there, but the US engages in warfare in countries, and it makes it easier to continue to do that if those countries are inhabited by people of color. We know that there's been an upsurge in needed, much needed, and much more needed discourse in the United States about systemic racism, but in the political discourse and media is confined to domestic policy, as though at the water's edge, personal and institutional racism stops. And, you know, that's absurd, but it's uh, it's a tacit assumption because there's a sort of a no-go zone. And I mentioned the overlay. it's There is a, it's definitely a racial component that dehumanizes, as you say, makes invisible the humanity, the grief, the suffering of people who the U.S. kills. There's a racial component that makes it easier, and a religious one. So many of the victims of the so-called war on terror have been, have been Muslim. And there's also nationalistic, there's geopolitical, there's the framing of what the U.S. national interests are and who the enemies are. And that also makes it easier for the U.S. government and media to essentially define for us, for us to internalize whose lives matter and whose lives don't really matter.
0: One of the things you said is that somehow it's been easier to justify wars when they target people of color. And you've talked about violence abroad as well as state violence here in the U.S., You also said that that death is hidden in plain sight. And I guess I just want to challenge you a little bit about it. Is that death really hidden and or in the case that in some cases, maybe it's very much not hidden. Why is that justifiable in this place?
1: In U.S. mass media, there are very fleeting reports when the United States Slaughters people overseas. I mean, one example of many that I could have given in the book is when several hundred people, most of them children, were incinerated by a U.S. bomb in a bomb shelter that they had taken refuge in during the Gulf War in Baghdad. That was a fleeting story. Yes, it was covered, but only in passing. And as I say in the book, the essence of propaganda and image making. Is repetition not the occasional, not the exception? And so we had, uh, as I quote in the book, a major TV network just days later uh, that anchor saying it had been just a almost a flawless war. Well, you know, what about those eight hundred people incinerated who were just as innocent as any innocent American who is killed in nine eleven or any other time? So I think that question is. How visible are the victims of U.S. military firepower? And I think the book makes a case that they are virtually invisible in terms of emotional impact. That is the opposite of, for instance, what happens when Americans die in a war or what happens when an enemy of the United States government is slaughtering people, as is the case in Ukraine.
0: One of the cases you make is is that the essence of propaganda is repetition. You have a specific focus w- within that section of the book on defense spending, and even that phrase itself. I'm wondering if you can draw that thread out for us. What are we really talking about here when those concepts are normalized so much that we can call war spending defense spending?
1: This is an example of how deeply internalized the precepts and assumptions of the warfare state are accepted and made part of the the language, uh, including of progressives, including of people who consider themselves to be and are anti-war. And I think it was Orwell who said quite eloquently that um, sloppy language doesn't... Uh, make us uh, fail to understand, doesn't make us dumb, but it helps, and it moves in both directions. When we use sloppy language, when we have internalized and therefore recycle the sloppiness, it makes it easier for our thoughts to be uh, imprecise or even flat-out wrong. And the use of the word defense, we hear it routinely, defense spending, defense budget, That is a term that is virtually always written lowercase, lowercase d. I mean, that's preposterous. How much of the $850 billion a year that the U.S. government is now spending on the military, $850 billion with a B, how much of that is legitimate defense? Well, some of it is, but the vast majority of it literally has nothing to do with defense. 750 military bases overseas, U.S. spending more on the military than the next 10 nations in the world combined, and most of those are military allies. And so it really, it's a little bit like, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard for me when I I hear great anti-war people saying, you know, um, our defense spending is too high, the defense budget is too high. And this is, I think, both an example and a metaphor for how pervasive militarism is in our society.
0: Well, and when we're talking about the the defense budget and thinking of 9-11 as a turning point in the U.S. and its military relationship to the world, um, we also see the quote-unquote defense budget or the military and war budget rising dramatically every year. And that, of course, includes so recently since the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of what happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. There was a lot of talk about the peace dividend, which which basically never came. As I, I remember, there was you know, a dip in some military spending, but it, it really regained its footing. And we had, uh, the, as I mentioned, the war uh, bombing of, of uh, Kosovo and Yugoslavia at the end of the 1990s, a lot of military actions uh, aimed at uh, Iraq during that time, periodic bombing almost yearly, and then through the roof. And of course, not after 9-11, the growth of what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, which, could, which we could now call the military-industrial media surveillance complex, it just went through the roof. I mean, it is what an incredible gift to the oligarchs of the country Almost overnight, offices sprung up around what is now unfortunately called Reagan Airport, National Airport in Northern Virginia, around the Pentagon, uh, near the NSA. That is not far from Baltimore Washington Airport. This has just been a, you know, the, the as I say in the book, it wasn't mission creep; it was a, a dash for cash. This was an incredible boondoggle. Uh, ultimately ending up into the trillions of dollars for the war profiteers. And this is, um, this is still what we're living with today. And meanwhile, whether you live in the San Francisco area or anywhere else in the, in the United States, you don't have to go far to be in areas, even if you don't live in one, where people are suffering through a lack of education, health care, housing, infant care, elderly care, So this is exactly what Martin Luther King was talking about when he denounced in 1967 what he called the madness of militarism. And he described this massive military spending as a demonic suction tube. There are a lot of people, um, and uh, really I'm sure some of them are listening to us right now, who are really not that upset about the Biden administration's foreign and military policy And because he's a Democrat, because the Russians are doing such horrible things in Ukraine, we're um, encouraged to believe that uh, the militarism that Dr. King denounced is, uh, for the most part, a thing of the past. Um, I even read very progressive people at times saying the United States has made some errors in foreign policy, but it's basically had a good role. It's now a bulwark of of freedom. And I wonder how that would play with people in Yemen, for instance, who um, are survivors in a country where, according to the UN, nearly 400,000 people have been killed since the Saudi-led war On that country, since 2015, a war supported actively with military sales and training and surveillance information, reconnaissance info, actively held by the U.S. government, whether it was Obama, Trump, or Biden. So this sort of gets back, Jesse, to the question you were raising a few minutes ago. Why is it that the people slaughtered in Yemen? somehow have less of a media and political profile, to put it mildly, as people in Ukraine. It's, yes, there's a racial and religious component, but there's also the U.S. foreign policy component as well, that uh, if the U.S. is doing the killing, uh, let's soft-pedal it. As a matter of fact, MSNBC, as I cite a study in the book from the Media Watch Group Fair, scarcely covered it at all. They were doing like 5,000 percent as much coverage of Russia Gate, this is way before um, even the Ukraine War uh, happened. Uh, virtually unmentioned, the U.S. assisted war on Yemen for years and years, while tremendous coverage of the evils of uh, what were alleged to be major uh, Russian interferences in the uh, 2016 election. So. Um, we, sh- we have no reason to be smug as progressives about our own media and political culture around militarism because quite often uh, that culture has made tremendous strides and inroads uh, within our own communities.
0: You're listening to Law & Disorder on KPFA, and I'm Jesse Strauss in conversation with longtime journalist and anti-war activist Norman Solomon, whose new book is called War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Now, Norman, we've been talking about these military political developments essentially since 9-11 all over the world in, in many continents around the world. You were just talking about Yemen. We're talking about increased uh, military budgets, increased weapon development. Let's bring it back home a little bit because every time, and and even in your conversation about Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, anti-war attitude, every time we build out this quote-unquote defense spending or war spending abroad, there's a very direct impact here at home, right?
1: Tremendous uh, effects, directly and indirectly. Uh, It's in the category of let us count the ways, and we would inevitably leave some out. It's a militarization of the culture. It's ways in which uh, literally millions of young people in this century from the United States have been trained how to kill. And they've been encouraged through their training and then often in battlefield conditions or uh, looking at pixels on a console as drone operators and other uh, such functions, encouraged that is is a patriotic, laudable activity to learn how to, and if necessary, to kill other people. And yet, then most of them return to civilian life, and the pretense is you can... Uh, You just take the military uh, training and the um, acculturation for killing um, out of those human beings. Well, in many instances, you can. But it it has an effect, and on some, it has uh, an effect where they can't, so to speak, turn off the switch. And even if they can, which is the usual, um, what used to be called shell shock, now PTSD, is rampant, and yet uh, political leaders don't like to talk about that very much. And so that's one ripple effect. The uh, Pentagon has something called the 1033 program, which provides gratis um, MRAPs and other military uh, hardware and software and so forth uh, to police forces. It's a gift, and you have to give it back if you're a police force if you don't put it to use. This This has been modified through the uh, many-year efforts of Congressman Hank Johnson so that Biden signed a bill to, to reduce the scope of the 1033 program, but it still exists. And um, during the George Floyd protests, many anti-racism protesters around the country were in the streets literally facing weaponry from the Pentagon, being utilized by police forces. So that's another aspect, of course, the depletion of resources, uh, the entire uh, militariza- militarization of the psychology of the society, which is, is very widespread. And um, it's so common that we routinely don't notice it. It just becomes a part of the scenery. Um, so the corrosive aspects of what Dr. King called the madness of militarism are all around us. And it's um, really uh, crucial that we recognize it and that we uh, organize to challenge it, that we utilize our media spaces to expose and to uh, say that this doesn't have to be. I close the book with uh, another quote from James Baldwin. He said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced and really that goes to the heart of why i wrote this book because i feel that the invisibility of us wars in the present time and the ways in which we are tacitly and explicitly encouraged to define to divide the victims of war into people who matter and people who don't all that is extremely corrosive about who we are as individuals and what the United States is as a government.
0: And I want to get more into, a little bit more into the invisibilizing portion, but I want to stick with the technology side of things for a moment. I found a Martin Luther King quote in your book where he said, when scientific power outruns moral power, we end up with the guided missiles and misguided men.
1: That's very, it's quite relevant, of course, to today, even more so with uh, the use of drones and the technology that we're encouraged to, to worship. I mean, this has been going on for a long time, but it's intensified as the technological um, so-called advances have occurred. Not having boots on the ground, as the saying goes, has been a tremendous political boost for ongoing warfare. Having Americans come home dead and injured was not good politically in the long run, especially when the U.S. clearly was not, quote, winning in Iraq or Afghanistan. So being literally and figuratively, supposedly, above the above it all by bombing and using drones and so forth with the latest technology... That's been a real plus for the war makers, for one person in the White House after another who keeps wars going, but it's less muss, less fuss politically and in the media because uh, so few Americans are dying. So that's that's certainly one dynamic that that we've been dealing with.
0: It's also making me think of the rapid deployment of technologies locally and how their funding is often related to war making. The things that are coming up on my mind right now is if you go to San Francisco, you'll see automated driverless robot car taxi cabs all over the place. At the same time, we have TV and film writers creating contractual protections for their jobs against artificial intelligence. I can imagine these types of technologies in war being used to argue for the supposed safety of war making for the supposed safety of soldiers, in a conversation that dehumanizes the actual victims. You know, there's always regular people dying in these wars. Is my fear of those technological developments and war real? Have they already been in use on the battlefield? Or are we field testing them in the streets of San Francisco so that when it comes time to send a driverless car bomb to someone's house in a faraway country, we are just comfortable with it here in urban America? (laughs)
1: Well, essentially, um, drones are you know, driverless vehicles um, that have terrorized a lot of people, not only those who were killed, but just hearing the, the drones overhead and knowing you could be killed any minute. That's certainly a form of terrorism that the U.S. has engaged in in Africa and in Pakistan and Afghanistan and elsewhere. It's ironic because, you know, we've been encouraged to believe that technology Uh, can really democratize. And historically, as the scholar Robert McChesney has pointed out, this has been a theme. Uh, Telegraphs were going to democratize, radio, broadcast television, cable TV. In each uh, iteration of technological progress, we were told, people were informed that this was going to democratize. And I think we need to really keep in mind a point that Herbert Marcuse made, that technology really is subservient to who controls it, who has the dominance of it. And digital technology is, you know, a overarching case in point right now. So, We've been told, "Hey, this is you know, because you have your cell phone, you have more freedom." And in some cases, you know, we could we could say that. But who's in control? Who's making money off it? Who's directing the uh, the trajectory of the algorithms? Whether it's Facebook, whether it is uh, the Pentagon. Part of the tragedy is that these tremendous technological advances could be used to heal the sick, to house the homeless, to elevate the human experience on the planet. Uh, Instead, we've got fossil fuels that are uh, accelerating a climate emergency. We have a lack of democracy. And I think that goes to the underlying, uh, in some ways, most basic question, which is, do we have a democracy in place? we have an oligarchy in place and we hear a lot and we should hear denunciations of Russian oligarchs. We got Russian oligarchs and except for Bernie Sanders, it's hard to find anybody in Congress even willing to say so. Well, in your book,
0: you create some, Portion of a proposal to create a more democratic space, you wrote, and this is a quote to activate a more democratic process will require lifting the fog that obscures the actual dynamics of militarism far away and close to home. To lift that fog, we need to recognize evasions and decode messages that are routine every day in the United States. That brings us back to the centerpiece of the invisibilization that your book is about. But Norman, what could it really look like to lift that fog?
1: We've got to challenge mainstream media, and we need to sustain and build and support, and that would include, of course, KPFA, support independent progressive media outlets. We are, you know, people want to get uh, biblical. It's a David and Goliath battle or, uh, you know, a Joan versus Goliath battle, and it's a battle that, that is ongoing so uh, exposing and confronting mainstream corporate media uh, which really I would include um, NPR and PBS, and also building uh con- contrary alternatives uh, counter counterpoints to uh, to show that there are other ways to function to have communication that's horizontal instead of vertical that's not subservient to to corporate and government power so that's that's part of it and a lot of it I think is in our our political culture and how we analyze and critique and uh, move away from the, the credulous approach that is, is really easy to sort of uh, slide into in terms of mainstream media. When I was in civics class in high school, and I think this was true of many, many people, I was taught that democracy required the informed consent of the governed. We don't have, certainly in case of, of war and peace and U.S. foreign policy, no way do we have the informed consent of the governed. We have the uninformed pseudo-consent, which has nothing virtually to do with democracy.
0: And we are talking about mainstream media. I would also just like to add that um, when we're talking about younger people in our communities, the the function of social media for how people get information is huge and is hugely impacted. It's also controlled by very small minorities of people who have major business interests in many of the same ways that mainstream
1: media has. The algorithms are so powerful, and they they um, don't completely, but they largely determine what pops up on people's social media screens, what is elevated, that if it's inflammatory, if it gets more... Eyeballs and clicks and so forth; these are not benign institutions, of course. To put it mildly, it's a pretty much 180 from that. The Facebook and Twitter and so forth. Why does it exist? It exists to extract uh, maximum profits for for certain individuals and uh, corporate entities, and that is where we are. And creating a contrary culture. Uh, not only individual, but in terms of structures and institutions, that's that's really uh, central to the task ahead.
0: And it is quite a task ahead, you know, Norman. I can't end this interview without asking a few direct questions about Ukraine. You've talked about Ukraine, and I've been holding off a little bit because it feels like such an important conversation right now. It is a significant war we are going on along time in that war now, it's also a difficult situation. I'm wondering if you can just reflect on what it could look like to have a functional
1: anti-war stance in that. A functional anti-war stance would have a single standard of human rights, a single standard of adherence to international law, and really a single standard to how we respond I believe that the U.S. media coverage on the whole of the suffering in Ukraine from this indefensible Russian war on Ukraine, the coverage of the suffering has been very good. What a contrast to the non-coverage, little coverage, sparse coverage in U.S. media of the suffering from those who have died and been injured and lost loved ones because of Pentagon firepower in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, and elsewhere. It's a virtually night and day difference, as I document in the book. And that should create a lot of soul-searching because increasingly on the left among progressives in the last year and a half, Maybe unconsciously, there's been a bifurcation of our compassion. And that's very corrosive. We need a single standard. And it's not just about wars that we think of as being in the past. I would give an example Uh, where I live, if I drive around, I see Ukrainian flags. I've never seen. A Yemeni flag. I'd ask people listening to us, you've probably seen Ukrainian flags. How many Yemeni flags have you seen? I bet you've seen zero displayed in your neighborhood. The United States, as I was mentioning a few minutes ago, has been directly involved in assisting the Saudi-led slaughter in Yemen, the largest cholera epidemic In modern history according to the u.n several hundred thousand deaths since 2015 so when we talk about ukraine we shouldn't do it in isolation we do need this single standard we're now in a situation where there's essentially a almost taboo in many people's minds about advocating for diplomacy diplomacy has become almost a dirty word when it comes to Ukraine on Capitol Hill and in U.S. media and in the minds of even some progressives. A ceasefire has become uh, very, very controversial, even to advocate. And this is, I think, a very odd and damaging mindset for people who think of themselves as anti-war or other people to think of look, there are there are roots for this war. There's no justification for what Russia has been doing to Ukraine. There is an explanation. And as I go into in the book, the expansion of NATO was, um, as many uh, even conservative experts were warning, going to be catastrophic, not just George Kennan, but dozens and dozens of prominent analysts with, US foreign policy, diplomatic experience. The message was don't do it. But these hotshot uh, presidents like uh, Bush and Clinton and Obama, they were too smart for that because uh, there's, there was an agenda there. Well, that's a history. And so history matters. It doesn't let uh, Russia off the hook uh, morally, ethically, legally. Yeah, Putin's a war criminal. So is George W. Bush. So arguably is um, Barack Obama who sent more troops into Afghanistan. We need a single standard.
0: If you were to try to articulate what that single standard in your mind is, what is it?
1: Countries shouldn't be invading each other. Uh, Countries uh, should not be... uh, Encouraging and arming other nations to invade yet other nations, and that war criminality uh, is uh, evaluated uh, according to a set of precepts. At Nuremberg, uh, the conclusion right after World War II was that the supreme international crime was to engage in a war of aggression. And it doesn't do to say, to the world, do as we say, not as we do, this is, of course, way easier said than done. But we need to restrain uh, U.S. militarism uh, rather than saying we're going to preach to other countries and then do as we say, not as we do. It just just isn't going to fly. In terms of the concrete situation right now, um, I believe that we need a neutral Ukraine. And as I write about uh, in the book, when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, days later, President uh, Biden gave his State of the Union address. It was his first one. And in 6,000 words, he didn't mention nuclear weapons, nuclear war, nothing about the escalating, spiking dangers of nuclear war. And this is something that I would uh, urge people who sort of, I believe, cavalierly as though it's a, just a purely moral stance, say, uh, oh, we're just going to keep sending weapons uh, to Ukraine, whatever they want, and that's the end of it. We don't interfere other than that. We have nothing to say. Just send the weapons. How moral a stance is to continue to say, essentially, to Ukrainians, let's you and them fight. Let's have you kill more and more Russians. Let's have more and more Russians kill more and more of you, and we'll send the weapons because we're so moral about it. Uh, that's no solution whatsoever. The reality is that we have a lost opportunity that needs to, as much as possible, be regained. Right before the invasion, at a news conference, President Biden was asked, do you support bringing Ukraine into NATO? And he had the opportunity to say no. But instead, he said, oh, if Ukraine wants to uh, join NATO and NATO wants it to join, then that should be its prerogative. And uh, some people may think it's not applicable, but it surely is. If decades ago the the Russian-led Warsaw Pact were to incorporate Mexico or Canada and point missiles uh, towards the United States, uh, it would have been completely unacceptable um, to the U.S. and it would have uh, taken uh, predictably military action. So the idea that only the United States can define what is national security for any other country, that uh, we have our Monroe doctrine, but uh, when other countries even want to define at their own perimeters what their national security might be in terms of hoping for neutrality uh, around what could be a buffer zone, uh, somehow that's unacceptable. So the idea of U.S. exceptionalism, that we are the light onto the nations, that Although we're 4% of the world's population, we are really the gift uh, to humanity. People elsewhere in the world just aren't going to buy it.
0: And we're going to have to end on that note of acknowledging and shutting down American exceptionalism. And we're going to end on the note of a single standard that Norman is bringing. Norman, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jesse.
0: That's the voice of Norman Solomon, a journalist, media critic, activist, and author of more than a dozen books. His brand new book is called War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine.
2: You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.